Welcome to the Carveline Tech Service Podcast, the go-to industrial coatings podcast. Here are your hosts, Jack Walker and Paula Jamis. All right, welcome to another edition of the Carboline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me, as always, is Paula Jamis. Joining us this week, we have Doug Sinatare. He's our market manager for the oil and gas market. Hey, Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? All right. Doug was supposed to join us last week, but uh, he was in the third world country known as Texas and uh, couldn't make it on the show. So we're glad that he uh, he's back and has power and is back to the first world country that he should have been in all along. That's right. Yeah, speaking of energy, we all learned a lot about that last week. I, I, I bet. bet. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. So Doug, you're fairly new to Carboline and you're our oil and gas market manager. So why don't we just take a real quick second and tell uh, people kind of about who you are and, and, and what you do. Sure thing. Yeah. So in this role, uh, global role for oil and gas, you know, support our, our different segments, one of which we're going to talk about today, upstream, midstream and downstream. Most of my career, roughly just short of 20 years in the industry's been mostly related to oil and gas. Spent most of my time in Houston, as you alluded to, did spend a little bit of time up north. So I lived in the cold and uh, wasn't afraid of it until I guess moved back to Texas and, and had it without any power. But The um, <laughs> problem is your neighbors weren't used to it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, spent a couple of years up in Western Canada, but decided to be on board here and knew a lot of people coming into Carboline. So a new company, but felt very familiar. Sure. I think you told me one time in a conversation that you basically grew up in an oil field. So uh, if that doesn't qualify you, I don't know what does. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm close to the Gulf of Mexico where, where we're going to talk about, you know, upstream drilling. So that's as good as it gets. For sure. So then I guess with that, we might as well get into it. So, you know, you've thrown out some of the buzzwords. You've said upstream, midstream, downstream, and these are all the different parts of how oil is processed. And so we look at those and divide them that way because their needs are a little bit different depending on where you are in that lines. We wanted to talk about upstream on this podcast today. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what upstream means to oil and gas? Yeah, for sure. So when you think of upstream, you know, a lot of what you consider is really the extraction process. There is an offshore component, an onshore component, but you're talking about facilities that are designed to get crude oil and gas out of the ground, then, then transported for further processing or, or whatever's going to happen there. So in general, you know, growing up, as I mentioned, in the near the Gulf of Mexico, upstream was always synonymous with offshore, big offshore company headquarters. You had a lot of related equipment, a lot of yards that built, but certainly, and as we'll talk about over the last 10 years, when it comes to upstream, the, the shale revolution has brought to light the onshore component of that. So certainly uh, big and vast, but when you look at it, it's, it's based on proven reserves. I mean, think about it like that. Where's oil and gas in the world? Where is it proven? If I'm an owner operator and I'm involved in upstream, I'm looking to make investments where I can drill uh, for an extended period of time with minimal investment and get that return on investment. So that's really the high level summary of upstream, if you will. As we talk about the upstream and that, that it has shifted from a almost idea of being mainly offshore, what are some of the new trends that we've seen 
as being problems as we or challenges as we've moved products to onshore. We've kind of come off of the water a little bit in some of the new designs. Yeah. When you consider onshore and, and particularly look, just look at drilling for you know, for shale. You know, a lot of times you're in these remote locations, you're out uh, in the middle of nowhere, really. So with that, it's less expensive, ultimately, to build a facility onshore for obvious reasons, the footprint's less, but all the related costs when you look at infrastructure, you know, you're sometimes you're out in the middle of nowhere where you got to build roads and power. Last week, that was just Texas, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, just another day. So I can see a theme. We're going to keep coming back to this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're not letting it go. We're yeah, from and, the Midwest, so we deal with snow and cold all year. So, yeah, no, we're yeah. not letting it go. Oh, and a disclaimer, I, I know you've had my colleague Brian Cheshire on. He's more of the joke guy. I, I'm with puns, so you, you'll see some of those. So I can okay. I can tell we're going to really drill into this idea of the Texas free. <laughs> But, uh, All right, so that's where we're going. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're used to this, though. I mean, we're we're the Midwesterners, so people don't even want to come to our state. We're flyover country, so that's this right. is we're we're used to people making fun of where we live. So, uh, right. you know, <laughs> hey, it was well deserved. I mean, we, no, nobody down here in the energy capital should have been without power, but. Maybe that's another podcast topic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, back to onshore, it, it's really, you know, you're, you're looking at the infrastructure to build it, you know, much, much like when you look at building offshore, you know, you got to find a way to house people. You got to find a way to have the ancillary equipment and supplies that you need. So the cost of onshore drilling in, in general, from what I've been told and, and what I've gathered, it's, it's about 15 to 20 times less just to build the infrastructure. But, you know, you got those related challenges as well. So that's one big thing. How do you see that the uh, pandemic has uh, changed the industry over the last year as people are shuffling? And, and, and you know, everything's kind of changing as a result of that. But where do you see the, the oil and gas industry changing because of that? Yeah, well, I think I'll answer that question. But first of all, if you go back to you know, when I mentioned the, the onshore drilling and the revolution of shale, what you started to see is operator companies that were primarily just offshore. You started to see them shift their investments to onshore. Again, I mentioned it was cheaper. You know, you, you had a fairly quick return on investment. There was an abundance of technology and, and engineering development. So really what I've seen with the pandemic is, you know, there's this crunch on capital money. So some of those things that you saw happening were accelerated. The irony, though, is, you know, what we're starting to hear now with the upstream offshore world is since there's such a tight crunch on capital, actually drilling offshore is in some ways more of a sure bet. You've got these proven reserves, the technology's there. It's been happening for 20 years. And I think people are also realizing you've got to be integrated. If I'm an oil and gas producer, I've got to be integrated. One other thing that's sped up that you've seen during the pandemic, and it's not just in oil and gas, it's in any industry, but you know the way the money flows and the investment, it's not just the pure return on capital. I mean, we're talking about environmental issues that have now made it front and center in terms of investing. Safety has been a big issue for, for years, and especially, you know, you, if you look at some of the unfortunate incidents that have happened offshore, that helped to, to curb spend. But, you know, that's another area that now, if you look at operator companies and their yearly reports, they're talking about even things like asset integrity. So these kind of things have, have really shifted where that money's being spent. I think, again, part of that conversation is you still go back to where are the reserves. And we know, you know, world energy demand, you're still going to have a lot of gas and oil. So neither one's going away. 
I think it'll be interesting the next six to 10 months to see who really stays more concentrated in the offshore sector and who stays diversified, but really kind of all over the place, depending upon where you are in the world. And it sounds like a lot of them have kind of moved back into their comfort zone, exactly. something that was well-established. They understood the process and, and the transportation, the logistics of what they needed to do. Yeah. And kind of moved back to that and said, I understand this and I can control this cost. That's where I need to be right now. Yeah. And that, that's a good point. One of the phrases I've con consistently heard is protect your core business and then refresh your strategy. And that's re really what we're seeing now. So I think you'll continue to see a lot of significant offshore projects going on now. And we've found some reserves recently. So it'll be pretty balanced, I think, going forward. Do you think any of the green initiatives that the different companies you see, you know, BP runs commercials, they're studying algae and things like that. Do you think either the green initiatives could shift their desire to either go offshore or onshore for the upstream? Or is, does that really have any effect there whatsoever? Yeah, I think what you really see is whatever you're doing, the financial community and the investment community says, do it more responsibly and do more of, you know, try not to be so reliant just on oil and gas. So I think you're going to continue to see, you know, you still need oil and gas for many years to come, but I think it's more about looking at the whole supply chain and, and even from a company perspective, hey, if we are drilling on and offshore, what are we doing in that process to make it a little more responsible, more green, find some alternate sources uh, of energy. So that's really, I think, where the, the shift is right now. Perfect. All right, Paul, we're going to talk a little bit about the Simstone System Selector Guide. This is a brand new document brought to you by Carboline to help you better navigate our secondary containment line. Paul, why don't you tell them a little bit about this guide? Yeah, so one of the really nice things about this guide is just how interactive it is. This guide goes and it breaks down on dozens and dozens of different common chemicals that you're going to see in the industrial spaces. And it lets you know, are you we're talking about foot traffic? Do you have forklift traffic? Is this a truck loading zone? And it breaks down each system by what kind of traffic can it tolerate? What kind of system do you have to install? And the interactive part is when you go to the website and you go to the marketing page and you download this document, it's interactive to the point where you click on the button and it opens up the system information sheet for that product. So it will tell you about the full aggregate filled coating system or a neat coat system if it's a neat or a fabric reinforced system. Every one of those are linked right there to it. So there's no guessing, there's no hunting around. You don't have to know how to maneuver the website. Just click on that and it takes you right to the sheet that gives a description of what coatings are needed and how to order and generally install that system. Yeah, so if you're a specifier and you're out there and you're working on secondary containment systems, you should use this guide as it'll give you everything you need to know to write a secondary containment specification. That's the Simstone Selector Guide by Carboline at www.carboline.com. We now know officially that upstream refers to where we're drilling in the ground, where we're, where we're pulling the oil out of the ground, whether it's offshore or onshore. And I think what we should do is take a little bit of a look at the corrosion challenges uh, because that's what we do, right? We're here to help prevent corrosion. So let's take a little bit of a look at the corrosion challenges that happen and we might as well start with offshore. So why don't we talk about that, Doug? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting place to start. In, in my view, and I think many others, the offshore world of corrosion protection and fighting this war on corrosion, as I 
sometimes tell people. It's really the ultimate test for coatings. I mean, if you look at where these offshore facilities are located, it's all over the world. So you've got all kind of tough environmental conditions. Some of it's Arctic, some of it's closer to where I live in the, in the Gulf Coast. You got extreme humidity and sometimes no power. <laughs> See, we didn't even have to go there this time. Yeah, yeah just, just did it. I, if I preempt it, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe that'll help. Be, go a little easier on you. <laughs> yeah. But when you look at offshore, you know, I mentioned the size and complexity. You've got challenges for tidal zones. You've got heavy abrasion resistant needs. You've got your standard zinc, epoxy, urethane systems, living quarters where, where you're housing the folks that are out there, they're working, you know, that, that requires fireproofing. You got the subsea component, which has some, an insulative element to it. So really it's kind of all over the board when you look at offshore and even looking at it from a development standpoint of, of standards, you know, NORSOC is a big standard that governs a lot of that kind of work. I think they were developed in, in about 94 and they don't just do materials. NORSOC has a lot of different standards. But the good thing about upstream offshore in terms of corrosion protection, you know, I think there's been a lot of development on testing and, and this qualification, which is fantastic. That's come a long way. But the good thing about that, too, is you've got decades of performance of these systems in these harsh environments. So I think when it comes to that, and, and these are a lot of things, and we'll talk about it in some other podcast when we move to petrochem downstream side, but there's a lot of relatable things that you can take and lessons learned. We talk a lot about that in the industry. A lot of the corrosion challenges that we faced offshore and, you know, had learning curves on and, and seen the performance of things in these really harsh environments. A lot of learning's been, been had there that, that you can take a lot of places, but also really vet your coating system. So I think it's important when we talk about that to look at, you know, what's performed and what hasn't and Kind of go from there. As a tech guy, I really do appreciate the amount of testing that has been, I guess, encouraged by the oil and gas industry. It's not been so much just tell me what you think is good. It is show me, prove it. Here's a set of standard tests. And oil and gas has really done a lot to push that idea and that scope forward so that you can... If you're a supplier looking to sell things to the industry, or if you're the owner who's looking to bring them in, you can really compare similar products because you have a set of performance. How's it look in this test? And when we're all doing the same test, it really is a nice standardization. Everybody understands what the target is. And that's truly been one of the most eye-opening and encouraging things seen coming out of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, to your point too, particularly in the upstream offshore side, it's it was the pioneer when it comes to that. Yeah. And Paul, I need to clarify though. You said you're a you're a technical guy. I thought you were a podcast guy mainly and the tech service on the side, but I guess I'm <laughs> I stand corrected. No, those <laughs> lights would say otherwise. Do you see that see? lighting? <laughs> It, you, know, you try to keep stepping up the game when when I have a, such a face and a body for radio and now you're putting me on a screen. I got to do anything I can to detract from those other less light, less. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Anyway, moving back on, because uh, we're getting close to time. We talked and I think you're right, Doug, and we're going to have to have an episode where we break down some of specific coatings that we use. And obviously I think we could do an offshore one completely by itself, just talking about the different coatings and all the different areas. But before we wrap up today, I would really like to talk about the uh, corrosion factors for onshore areas. Where do we see uh, corrosion factors for that? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I, I would say there, there may be 
you could argue not quite as complex when, when you look at the structures that are being built, particularly for drilling. You know, those are fairly simple systems. When you start talking about drilling the deep depths and doing horizontal drilling and, you know, what kind of gouge resistance do you need and dealing with soil corrosivity, some high temperature, high pressure scenarios, that, that's really what you're going to see. I think the comment there too, when you look at onshore, you've got so many different factors related to the related infrastructure that, like Paul mentioned earlier, pipelines and, and related build out to, to transport that. And that's where you have, you know, significant above, but mainly b- below ground coding challenges as well. So in general, I don't think it's quite as dynamic as, as upstream, but certainly it has its challenges. And, you know, one thing to mention too, when you look at that from a, you know, going back 10 years when, when we started really drilling for shale, a lot of these things and, and facilities went up so quick that uh, the rents kind of come and do on some of these coding systems, even if you didn't nail it just right. So I think you're going to have some challenges there just going back from the integrity standpoint and seeing what you had and when, when the build out was so big and, and so quick. Whereas you, you can't do that with the offshore structures. You have to be a lot more programmed and planned. Well, heck, and, you know, onshore in Texas, now you have to have freeze-thaw stability. Hey. You do. That's, that's true. <laughs> All right. Well, Doug, thank you very much. I think to just kind of summarize, upstream, when you think upstream and you think oil and gas, think about where are we getting the crude oil? Where is it coming from? A lot of that is offshore, like we kind of discussed. And offshore brings a whole lot of challenges. And so you can look forward to more episodes where we talk with Doug about the oil and gas industry. We're going to have them on every month, just like we do with uh, Brian Cheshire. So Doug, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, man. So to everybody else, we'll see you next week. And so for the Carboline Tech Service Podcast, I'm Paul. And I'm Jack. And we'd we'd like like to thank thank you for your support. support. Say, Carbo.